to The Michael Slate Show. I'm your host, Michael Slate. And that was members of the Los Angeles Revolution Club marching January 6th, the anniversary of an attempted fascist coup called for and led by Trump and the fascist Republican Party. And that's the theme of today's show, January 6th, 2021. At the back end of the show, we'll hear voices from the year-end podcast from Refuse Fascism 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review. These are writers, activists, revolutionaries, social researchers, and folks from the religious community. And they're digging into and helping us understand the events of January 6th and beyond. So don't miss that. And opening the show up, we'll hear an excerpt from the rally that took place in Beverly Hills, January 6th. Michelle Chai, a leader of the Los Angeles Revolution Club, will begin and introduce Noche Diaz, national spokesperson for the Revolution Clubs. Noche will give an important statement from the Revcoms on what's going on in the last year and why revolution is necessary and why we are living in a time when revolution may be possible. So here are Michelle Chai and Noche Diaz. We are the Revcoms. We are here today a year after these fascists, as people right now today are seeing all over the news the images of the faces of those rabid white supremacists who were fighting for a fascist nightmare future when they attempted a fascist coup just one year ago. And we're here to speak to those people who are looking at those images and might be afraid, might be wondering why are we in this situation? Why are we in a situation where these people who stormed the Capitol, led by Donald Trump and the Republican Party, what is happening and where is this headed? And we're here to bring you hope hope on a scientific basis. And that's what we're going to hear with this message from the Revcoms. I'm going to bring up Noche Diaz, a national spokesperson for the Revolution Clubs, to tell us what that message is. The events of one year ago, January 6th, in Washington, D.C., cast a heavy and long shadow. And the force that has gathered here today represents what must become in this new year the beacon of light and hope for a different future. Not just because of how badass all these individuals are, but because we are organized and led by the revolutionary leader and author of a new communism, Bob Avakian. But on this anniversary of January 6th, we have to confront some hard truths. Every day since one year ago, the profound crisis and deep divisions in this country have gotten only sharper. We are here in Beverly Hills because down the street, in two hours, a rally of fascists who have been mobilizing over this last year and even before that is going to be taking place, demanding a holiday to recognize Ashley Babbitt, one of the women who stormed the Capitol in Washington, D.C. and was killed in that riot. This rally in Beverly Hills is being called by people who have over the last year spent their time terrorizing and assaulting school boards, teachers, essential workers, health care workers, fighting for mask mandates and necessary health care measures. Not only do they want to celebrate the fascist coup and violent attempt to keep Trump and his regime in power, they themselves should be indicted for the killers and murderers that they are. Millions of people around the world have died from COVID, and these lunatics are promoting this anti-science and carrying out threats and assaults against people who are trying to save lives. And this is important 
to recognize because this society is coming apart. And today you will hear and have already heard Republicans who either don't want to comment because it's too hot right now or who want to shift the focus away from the way they led this attempted coup to talk about their lies about a stolen election. Meanwhile, the other side from the Democratic Party, while some are still wrapped up in the delusion that we can overcome all of this nasty partisanship and heal the country and its divisions, some of them are even starting to raise the alarm, saying the future of democracy in America is at stake. But they are not pointing to the fact that it is not just the battle around the election. So while they have raised some alarm about the future of democracy in this country, some things have to be said about that. It is not just the battle over election laws and the right to vote that this is taking place on. What we saw on January 6th, one year ago, is that one side of this country is preparing for a civil war that they want to be a one-sided slaughter of the people they hate. The fascists, led by the Republican Party, believe that they only they have a right to rule in this country. And that even the long-told lies about freedom and justice for all have to be done away with to bring about their vision of what makes America great again. But the Democratic Party are ruling over the same capitalist system that these Republicans rule over. And that is why they cannot confront and call on people to stop this nightmare. But we can, and Bob Avakian is, in his new talk, Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating. He points to how this system that is at the core of this is capitalism and imperialism and what we see between all this talk about Democrats and Republicans is a bitter fight amongst those who rule over us in this system over how to hold it all together while it is in deep trouble here and all around the world. And the fact is this system has no answers that are good for the masses of people and for humanity as a whole. This is why no answers can come from just relying on voting for Democratic Party politicians while these fascists prepare for civil war. And Bob Avakian points at how these divisions and fights at the top actually create openings for us, a rare time and circumstance where a revolutionary people in the millions and an organized core of thousands can actually be wrenched out of the crucible of this situation. Not in some far off distant future. Not by trying to ride out the storms and wait for the worst to pass us over but by confronting the very real dangers of where this is headed and fighting like hell to confront this and win many people to see that this system that has given rise to this must go. This system that has no answers for people, millions who have demanded a more equitable approach to the environment, this system cannot balance the needs to for cutthroat competition to plunder and despoil the planet. Women who have marched around the world demanding to be treated as equal human beings. The right to abortion in this country is being ripped apart and nothing can be called forth from the masses of women and the masses of people to unleash the fury of women to demand their equal humanity and place in society because this system has no room for it. 
Millions of people marched and demanded an end to institutional racism and murder by police after the death of George Floyd at the hands of murdering pigs. But this system cannot do away with murdering police because they have no room for millions of black and other oppressed people. This is why, fundamentally, there is no answer under this system and holding on to the way that this country has been held together for the last almost 200 years since the Civil War. And the Republican fascists know that and they want to get rid of those old norms. The Democratic Party and that side of the equation are trying to hold on to it to preserve that democracy and illusion and lie of freedom and justice for all. But we, the masses of people and everyone who has a heart for justice and a better future, have to be fighting to not only defeat this fascism, but to get rid of this whole system. And we, the Revcoms who follow Bob Avakian, are organizing you into that revolution now. Note well, on January 6th, this violent mob, decked out with their Trump regalia and banners, felt no irony holding side by side the flag of the Confederacy and the U.S. flag. Because that is the history of this country, of white supremacy, male supremacy, xenophobic nationalism, and America first plundering of the people of the planet and the planet itself. The fascists want to make all this worse. The Democrats want to keep it all together as it has been. We need to overthrow the whole damn thing. This year, we need to see growing numbers of people who are being forced to confront this truth about the history of this country and the nature of this system because of the way that the rulers are fighting amongst themselves. We need to struggle like hell for people to break with the ways of thinking that keep them going along with this system or keep people just thinking about how to survive for themselves or keep people paralyzed by fear and hopelessness because they cannot see a way through the horrors to something that is positive and truly possible. And we have that something that is really positive, truly emancipatory, and actually possible. And the roadmap for that has been laid out by Bob Avakian in his new talk, Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating. And we need to go to work on that now. Not only winning growing numbers of people to shake off the ways of thinking of this system and to take up the outlook and values of the revolution and the program for how we're building for revolution right now, but we also, especially on a day like this, need to take note that these sharpening divisions are not just political positions and platforms. This is coming along with intensifying violent conflicts and clashes. I mentioned earlier that just down the street there are people who will be celebrating the violence of that fascist mob on January 6th in Washington, D.C. and who have themselves been part of carrying out terror and assaults against essential workers and school boards and teachers who have been trying to fight for necessary health care mandates and mask mandates for COVID. The fascists in this city have also assaulted protesters with, including some people here, 
with bear sprays, knives, other ways in which they've assaulted people, including trying to hit people with their cars or actually running over protesters, surrounding people in parking lots, menacing and threatening. All of that, including the ways they are even attacking the representatives of this system and city councils and healthcare officials. The people who are opposed to all of that need to be organized in this situation to defend people who are coming under attack in this way as part of building up the strength to defeat these fascists. It has to be over where they, all over the country, fascists, can claim self-defense when they get strapped and they go to demonstrations of people marching against injustice and shoot people down and get away with it. The days have to be over where people are only passively watching on as this terror and violence is going on. The days this year have to come into being where growing numbers of people are taking up the responsibility and fighting for the right to defend each other against the violence, official and unofficial, whether it's from the police against the masses of most oppressed people, whether it's vigilantes who are going to demonstrations and shooting people down, whether it's thugs who are rallying at schools and assaulting and harassing teachers, following them home, following them to their cars, menacing and terrorizing. People need to be defended from this. These fascists cannot be allowed to have the future. These fascists cannot be allowed to maintain the offensive without facing growing numbers of people standing up to this. And to be clear, we are not calling for people to launch attacks against anybody. But we cannot allow the situation to continue where people are left defenseless on the streets and in the courts and nobody is organized and representing something truly emancipatory and standing up to this as part of building up the strength to defeat these attacks and get ready to overthrow this whole system. We, the Revcoms who follow Bob Avakian, we this year are calling on you to be part of filling that great need. And today, on January 6th, when the whole world, yes, the whole world, is looking at and talking about the crisis in the U.S. because of what this empire means for the oppressed people of the world, who it sits on top of and whose blood it sucks, whose countries it invades and destroys and plunders and exploits. If this country were to go over to something truly terrible, an open fascist dictatorship, which is what we are facing, that would have implication and ramifications for people all around the world. But think about this. If we bring this system down and get it off the backs of people here around the, and around the world, in this country, think of the bright hope and light that that would shine for oppressed people who hunger for freedom everywhere. This is what Bob Avakian is calling on us to rise to and was pointing out is actually possible in this rare time because of how dangerous and how sharp and how terrible things are posed right now is exactly why something truly positive can be wrenched out of this, but not without struggle.
not without daring, not without courage, and not without science. And this is what people do not have. You can look out today. You will see the images. You will hear the talking points. You may even hear some insightful commentary. But you will only get a scientific understanding of what we are facing, where this is going, and how we can take this somewhere else, somewhere truly emancipating, through revolution, from Bob Avakian, and those who are taking up what he is putting out there to organize people into this revolution. So this year, instead of another year where we see fascists on the offensive, on the move, rewriting laws to get ready to steal the next election, or carrying out violence to intimidate and threaten people who promote or advocate anything sane or decent, we need to see a year where growing numbers of people are lifting up their heads broadening their sights and seizing on this historic opportunity and moment that we live in and taking up the leadership that we are getting from Bob Avakian. Not squandering, not wasting this opportunity and chance that so many people live their whole lives waiting for. We have a chance for our lives to count for a great deal, not just for ourselves, but for the whole future of humanity and the planet. And we are living in times where we can make good and make real on that. This year, get with the revolution and be part of going to work to bring about those millions of revolutionary people, to organize the thousands who need to be at the core of this revolution, to train and, and bring forward scores and hundreds of revolutionary leaders who are taking up the new communism. This year, be part of fighting for something truly emancipating. This year, as we mark January 6th, let us look forward as how we will mark the next year. As Bob Avakian says again in his new talk, will it be something terrible or something truly emancipating? Let's go to work. Let's make revolution. That was Michelle Chai and Noche Diaz from the Revolution Club speaking January 6, 2022 in Beverly Hills. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, so stay tuned. Now, let's hear some of the voices from 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review. We'll hear Walden Bello, a Filipino academic, environmentalist, and social worker on Trump, Duterte, and the development of fascism internationally. I think that point is really essential in that history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does echo. And I think that the reality that fascism foments and relies upon this xenophobia, this white supremacy, this misogyny, and then uses that to help bludgeon the democratic norms and ultimately erase civil liberty. I think that this is really important. Yes. First of all, the way that the key features of fascism come together are very unique in each case. As I said, if you're expecting a spitting image of Adolf to come along, you'll be waiting forever. Whereas, in fact, 
a lesser figure than Adolf has already come to power. Okay? But second, you may not have the features of fascism unrolled all at once. Let me give you two examples. In the United States, it was not till the aftermath of the elections of 2020 that you saw the full fascist characteristic or reality of Donald Trump come out. You know, basically, he was out to subvert and overthrow the electoral system. So before that, people had just thought that, okay, yeah, he's like this, he's like that. He had all this fake news. They did not think that he would go to the extent of trying to overturn an election. So yes, therefore, it doesn't all come together in one fell swoop at the beginning of a regime. It's one of the reasons why people were late in recognizing that in a person like Trump. On the other hand, if you look at a person like Duterte, right from the get-go, he started the most fearsome feature of his fascist rule, which was the drug war you know, and the killing, extrajudicial execution of people who were uh, suspected of being drug users. And in the space of three years, over 20,000 people had been subjected to extrajudicial execution. Immediately, the most horrible feature of fascism, which is the systematic persecution of a certain sector of the population, not only imprisoning them, but killing them, sort of just unrolled very, very quickly. This is why I call Duterte was a blitzkrieg fascism. Now, the effect was a bit different than in the United States. The effect was to stun the population. Is this really happening? And then people began to recover their senses that this was in fact happening. You know, it was, can he really be doing this? And so, but even that, when people began to ask themselves, why is he getting away with it? And he was able to get away with it, not only because he stunned people, but because there was a base he was appealing to. People who felt that drugs and criminals uh, were the cause of society's degeneration, crisis in the Philippines. And not only that, People were so frustrated with the lack of social reform that although they might have disagreed with Duterte's execution, maybe they thought, oh, but maybe what the country really needs is an iron hand to set things together. So by the time that he was in his second year, there was already consolidated a base for fascism in the Philippines. So the point is that the features of a fascist personality or a fascist movement may come together differently and they do not just unfold in one fell swoop. So I just wanted to use these two examples to show you, you know, how in the one case in the United States, there was a protracted kind of recognition of a fascist. And in the case of the Philippines, the fact that the fascist went immediately to the, to the most horrible crime, which was extrajudicial execution of thousands, had the effect of stunning people so that it took them several months to recover and realize that, hey, this guy is the real thing, the real fascist. It had different sort of effects on the population. The point here when it comes to the United States is there are already pre-existing conditions, which is the racist democracy that the United States has had. And then there was the neoliberal impact on American white working class jobs that the Democratic Party was seen as having promoted along with the Republican Party, of course. And then thirdly, the sense that whites were going to become a minority fairly soon. 
because the demographics favored colored people. So I think those three things came together. And what Trump did was to bring those things together in his rhetoric. It's even hard to call it an ideology in a formal sense, but he was able to bring together these fears and resentments together to consolidate that base that he had. I won't spend too much time with Duterte, but in his case, I think that he came out as a, and people saw in him that he was not only somebody who promised to eliminate crime by killing people. During the elections, people probably thought he was just exaggerating, but they said, okay, crime is a big problem. Drugs is a big problem. The only guy who can eliminate this is Duterte. The second thing is there were people who may have disliked his language, disliked his rhetoric, and didn't really think that he should just focus on crime and drugs, but felt that, oh, this guy's an authoritarian figure and our democracy hasn't been working, maybe Duterte is the guy who will be able to eliminate corruption, okay? And he might be the guy who can discipline the elites who have been so selfish. So I think basically those things came together within the Philippine electorate, and especially the Philippine middle class. The Philippine middle class back in the 1980s, it was part of the movement that overthrew Marcos, the previous dictator, But by 2016, 30 years, the kind of democracy that emerged in 1986 had not delivered. So these resentments and frustrations and fear of crime all came together to produce a base for Duterte. That man, his followers proceeded to consolidate once he came to power. So that's the case with both in both the Philippines and the United States. One must not underestimate that base. Because although, for instance, in the Philippines right now, Duterte has been screwing up in terms of responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, and he's being seen as too friendly with China, you know, despite the fact that things are not going that well for him, I would not underestimate his hold on a significant sector of the population. Just like in the case of Trump, 11 million more people voted for him in 2020 than in 2016. So that means, you know, he may have lost the elections, but he has consolidated his hold over the Republican Party and has now a very powerful instrument. He may or may not win in 2024, but let's face it, what we have now in the United States is a sharply divided electorate. The way that I would characterize the United States is there is an informal civil war that is taking place there. And on one side of that are the Trump forces who are willing to believe anything he says and are his willing accomplices at this point in time. And then, of course, we also look at India, we look at Hungary, we look at Brazil, and, you know, we find many of the same features. And one of the things that is very, very striking when you look at the Philippines, India, Brazil, just take the global south, is the way the middle class has ceased to be a democratic force, but it's now a force for supporting authoritarian regime. That's very definitely different from the role of the middle class in the 1980s in this part of the world. This is the Michael Slate Show, and that was Walden Bello, academic and activist on Trump, Duterte, and the global threat of fascism. Next, media critic Eric Bollert examines the continuing role of the press in whitewashing the actions of Trump and his co-conspirators in attempting the January 6th coup. This meeting is a perfect example. So they're discussing martial law. They're discussing seizing voting machines. New York Times, to its credit, broke the story about the meeting. New York Times put the story on page 18. And the military aspect, the martial law, the seizing voting machines, wasn't in the headline, wasn't in the lead. The headline was about 
Trump might appoint Sidney Powell as a special counsel to look into fraud, voter fraud. A, there was no voter fraud. So why is New York Times mimicking Republican talking points talking about voter fraud in the election? That's a minor thing, but it really bugs me. There was no voter fraud in this election. New York Times should not be doing headlines about voter fraud unless voter fraud is in quotation marks because it's not a real thing. You had to get down about halfway in the article before you realized that they discussed martial law. The Washington Post the next morning, nothing on its nothing on its homepage, nothing on the website about this meeting. And to me, that is shocking normalization. And what you've described has been, to me, one of the hallmark failures of the press for the last four years is just that refusal to ring the alarm bell. And they should have been doing it in the spring of 2017. Instead, it's kind of this frog in the boiling water, or as you put it, that line that you think once it's crossed, banner headlines, screaming headlines, nonstop discussion, nonstop condemnation. Side note, when Bill Clinton was being impeached for his affair with Monica Lewinsky, nearly 100 newspapers in this country demanded he resign. Major newspapers, including the Philadelphia Inquirer, USA Today, not columnists, newspapers took institutional stances and said, Bill Clinton cannot serve as our president. He is unfit to serve. He lied under oath about the sexual act. Fast forward, none of those newspapers (laughs) in four years ever demanded that Donald Trump resign because he was not fit to serve. To me, that is mind boggling. I think to me, it goes to corporate cowardice. It goes to a press corps that either normalized him to such an extent that they didn't think he should resign or they were just too intimidated by his bullying. There's this resistance and reluctance to accurately describe his radical and dangerous behavior. And there's been that reluctance. Look, you know, coup has never used martial law. They don't like to use fascism. They don't use. I did a column two years ago saying if Trump was the leader of any other country and he did what he did. Every American news organization would call him an an authoritarian. In the headline, in the first sentence, he's the textbook definition. But why? You can't call a white Republican male an authoritarian, even though he is. So there's this timidity. And and your point was a good one when you started off about there's this idea, well, he didn't get away with it, right? He didn't overturn this election. You know, the system worked. Don't get so riled up. We're fine. And I've said, since the election. Imagine a slightly different scenario. Imagine if Joe Biden only won by one state. Imagine if he won Michigan by 5,000 votes. Does anyone think right now Joe Biden would be inaugurated next month? Absolutely not. Because the Republican Party, minus some state officials in Georgia, Arizona, other words, D.C. Republicans absolutely got on board with this. They absolutely got on board with this idea that we will overturn elections, we will throw out votes. The lawsuits, the Texas lawsuit that over 100 Republican members of the House signed on, it was an attempt to throw out 20 million votes. I don't think people should feel that great that uh, he didn't get away with it, because I think if it hadn't been a Biden blowout, if he hadn't won by 7 million votes, we would be on the precipice of a civil war at this point. That was Eric Bollert on the role of the media in normalizing fascism. Next, we'll hear from Bryn Tannehill, a leading trans activist and essayist, and she'll be followed by Wajahat Ali, an author, New York Times contributing op-ed writer and public speaker. So this book is kind of a culmination of four years worth of work, uh, looking at what happened and why it happened and what it means and where we're going. I recognize in the days after the election, and I share that in the, the preface of the book, of 
you know, on November 16th, 2016, I wrote something that basically said, wow, this is going to be bad and there's going to be violence. I don't know when, I don't know where, how, but a lot of it is going to be related to race and grievance. And it was also a recognition of how woefully unprepared we were, that discussions I had with people before the election on October 31st, 2016, well, what do we do if Trump wins? And the answer is, it will figure it out. It can't be that bad, right? The, the system will hold. Well, you know, yeah, it's going to suck, but we'll be fine. Well, we're not exactly fine. We're still stuck with a system that's broken, where popular legislation can't move through, where the Republican Party is still absolutely beholden to Trump. And just today, throughout the third ranking Republican in the House for daring to say that Trump did not, in fact, lose due to voter fraud and trying to break the party away from Trump, we see the instincts of the Republican Party continue to be towards authoritarianism, towards suppressing the vote, towards winning any way they can. And we can clearly see that they're clearing out anyone who would try and stop the altering the result of election that they didn't like. In 2020, we saw that Trump leaned heavily, and so did other Republicans, into state and local officials to refuse to certify the election. We saw that two-thirds of Republicans in the House voted to not certify the election. As much as we want to think, yay, Biden won, we're safe. No, we're not. One, because right now we can't move the vast majority of the legislation we need to shore up democracy through because of the filibuster and because of a few Democrats, because of the slant towards smaller states due to non-proportional representation. We see that in the courts that are going to make it much more difficult to protect voters' rights, workers' rights, protect corporate interests and in politics. And all of this means that the next time around, and this is kind of the conclusion of my book, is that the Republican Party tried to enact a violent coup last time and attempt a soft coup. They failed it, but they've learned from their lessons and they're setting things up such that there won't be a violent coup next time or a violent insurrection. They're going to trust that they have sufficiently put the pieces in place to overturn the election if they don't like the results. I was wondering if you could speak about how W and Obama's war on terror helped set the stage and ushered in, if you will, the rise of American fascism. Yeah. So the war on terror has been nurtured and supported. It's one of the few bipartisan things left in America, right, by both Republicans and Democrats. Now, that being said, I'm old enough to live through the Bush administration. And yes, Bush was far worse than Obama or Trump or Biden when it came to our foreign policy. But at the same time, what we warned back in the day was as Muslims and people of color and those who were Muslimy, we said, fine, you guys are going against us. We're the bad guys. And you guys are willing to trade your liberties for the false feeling of security, and you're willing to villainize us. But what are you unleashing? You're unleashing an ecosystem that will be hard to contain. You are strengthening a beast that will turn on you eventually. You are creating this vast apparatus that allows for surveillance, not just on Muslims, which you guys were perfectly fine with, but eventually it'll turn on you. And you're allowing extrajudicial killings. Yeah, you're fine because it's Anwar Oluki's son and him right now. And, you know, uh, Anwar Oluki was a, a mouthpiece for Al-Qaeda. His son was just an innocent teenager. And you guys are fine with it because, eh, Muslims in the Middle East and Yemen, who cares? But what happens if it turns on you? And that's what happens is we'd rather be safe than be free. And lo and behold, you see the long arm of the war on terror where the world is now a battleground. We have our local police looking like they belong from like Call of Duty 
walk in the streets, treating fellow Americans like we're insurgents. You saw this in 2020, in the summer, when millions came out to protest the murder of George Floyd. Look at the police state that came out to greet peaceful protesters. And I'm talking about white people in Portland. You guys remember that? White folks, white moms. So I'm like, they're turning on white moms. They're turning on old white grandfathers with a walker in Utah. Remember that guy who got pushed? And so this is what happens when you let power go unchecked, is that you get very close to achieving a police state. And I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, why would you relinquish power voluntarily? If I have the ability to use this entire apparatus to achieve my goals, both domestically and when it comes to foreign policy, why would I neuter myself? And you saw Trump exercise that. I'll give you one example. When they quote unquote cleared peaceful protesters in front of the White House so Trump could walk with generals to the church to take a photo op where he held the Bible upside down. Congratulations. The war on terror is at home. Folks like Eric Prince, who is the brother of Beth DeVos, hard right fanatical anti-Muslim Christians with a type of like endgame apocalyptic zealotry, who is literally saying, hey, hey, everybody, I made my money off the war on terror. I'm willing now to outsource this to any authoritarian regime. I'll work with China. I'll work with the Middle East. Trump, what do you want from me? And so the chickens come home to roost. I hate to say that. And voila, what we enabled and empowered and allowed due to our zealous rage against, quote unquote, Islam and Muslims who are the enemy has now come home against the real Americans, which, of course, always means white folks in the suburbs. Let's not sit there and keep the timeline just at the war on terror. It was the war on drugs. War on drugs. Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan. Let's clean up the streets. You got tanks in the quote unquote inner city, in the ghettos. And when it comes to the opioid crisis and meth affecting white folks, well, then they need our help. But uh, once you're introducing tanks in American streets for the quote unquote war on drugs, where quote unquote the enemy is oftentimes people of color, that was the precursor to the war on terror. And the war on terror now is gonna be the precursor to the war against the deep state. And wait until the Republicans get back in power. What makes you think that they will practice moderation? And also Democrats. What makes you think Democrats and Obama will practice moderation? I'll give you an example of Obama, the you know extrajudicial killing of Anwar Oluki. You can hate Oluki, but the manner in which it was done is terrifying. Drone strikes, threatening the sovereignty of another country, just raining death from the sky, not really caring about the trauma that this inflicts upon people. You know, I've talked to folks from Yemen, and they'll, they'll tell you. It's like this worrying. You look up in the sky, and you just hear this sound. You're like, death could come at any moment. The quote-unquote collateral damage. And what does that say about us? And what does that say about power? And what does that say about humanity? That you're perfectly willing from a base somewhere in Arizona with someone on a joystick to rain death on another country. But it's a democratic president, so it's okay. So anyway, you asked me a simple question, I gave you my thoughts. And I really appreciate them. And I think that this has always been true for this country since its founding, that the exceptionalism that exists, that destroys people's ability to care about lives that are other than American, But I think it's an important reminder that what we've allowed and what we've forgotten, I think, is also important to remember and question why we've forgotten it and why it doesn't even produce outrage in people the way that it should. We're we're hitting the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and oftentimes it's easier to look back with nostalgia and romanticism and not realize that this country went mad for a couple of years. I always use one example. In 2003, Dixie Chicks, who are now known as the Chicks, were like the biggest band in America. They had this this amazing tour that sold like so many tickets worldwide. And Natalie Maines, who's the lead singer of the Chicks, all she said was, if I remember correctly, it almost might be the same exact quote, I'm embarrassed that George W. Bush is from Texas. Bye, y'all. That's all she said. 
And for those of you who are young, there was a thing called CDs back in the day. And this country went so crazy, they took tractors over their CDs. They burned their CDs. And overnight, just like Liz Cheney, Dixie Chicks, who are like the most harmless white women on earth, you know, like these, these bubblegum, catchy songs that crossed over from country to mainstream. Like everyone loved the Dixie Chicks. They were public enemy number one. That's how crazy this country was, right? We were perfectly fine surveilling innocent Muslims in New York. We we're perfectly fine with these really malicious prosecutions and shutting down charities, mosque crawlers, and community rakers. And we were okay with it because the enemy at the time was them. Whoever doesn't look like us, Muslims, Arabs, anybody. And when we only seem to care is that when it affects us. Same thing with the pandemic. You saw this a year and a half ago. Some people openly said, well, it's only affecting a certain demographic. That meant black people and poor people. Once it started affecting them, now they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's get these masks up. It's like Macbeth. You're not trying to see the blood on your hands, but eventually you have to see it. There's a lot of blood on our hands as America, like these two disastrous wars. And what happens? America's really good at war. It's not good at empire building. And what happened? Biden's like, all right, let me just wash my hands, leave Afghanistan. And lo and behold, Taliban. Yesterday, Washington Post, like what we've been fearing, Taliban's making their assault. And so what did we accomplish? What did we accomplish at the end of the day, except death and destruction and traumatizing generations in Iraq and Afghanistan? And not to mention also our soldiers, those who came back traumatized. That's also the legacy, I think, of the war on terror, in addition to the rise of the quote-unquote post-9-11 police state. This is the Michael Slate Show, and that was Bryn Tannehill, a leading trans activist and essayist, and Wajahat Ali, an author, New York Times contributing op-ed writer, and public speaker. Now we'll hear David Atkins, a progressive reformist and a member of the Democratic National Committee. We've seen over and over again that the uh, Republican response to losing the election in November has been to change the voting laws, not only to prevent people from coming out and being able to cast their ballot, or just trying to restrict franchise, particularly to radicalizing groups. They're also trying to change who gets to certify elections. So you've seen in various states, then sometimes it's very specific to a specific elections official trying to take away the power of the Democratic Secretary of State from certifying an election, which is odd because you can't know for sure forever that the Secretary of State is going to be a Democrat or whatever, right? So these are very sort of temporary kind of things. But also in other cases, like in Georgia, they are taking the power away from local elections officials to be able to conduct elections in a matter that the local see fit and also to certify those elections. They're taking power away even from Republican secretaries of state that are seen as not hardline enough and reverting those to the state legislatures. And ultimately, what it's all in an effort to do, whether it's a Senate election or a presidential electoral college election, instead of allowing the people's vote to be certified to say, hey, you know, we just don't know. There might be voter fraud and we can't certify that this is a real vote count. Therefore, what we're going to do is hand it over to our extremely gerrymandered state legislature to simply decide who won the election, right? And because these are highly gerrymandered state legislatures, just like in, say, Wisconsin or House delegations, which is sort of the way the House lines are drawn. So just like in Wisconsin, where Republicans lose the popular vote, Wisconsin by eight points, but their legislature is... 64 to 32 or something like that for the GOP. That's a functional sort of authoritarian government, functionally apartheid kind of government. They'll just overrule the will of the people. That has been their reaction to losing the popular vote last six out of seven elections. It's their reaction to losing in November. It's not a far-fetched theory. It's what they're actively doing. That was David Atkins, an activist and writer. And I'd like to remind our listeners that we are hearing voices from 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review, And you can find the full podcast and much more 
at refusefascism.org, all right? So we're going to finish with two more speakers. First, Tony Norman, columnist at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and president of the National Society of Newspaper Columnists, who has written a lot about Trump and fascism. And finally, Carol Anderson, the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African-American Studies at Emory University. For me, and maybe my bias because, you know, I'm African-American and I'm particularly sensitized to, to issues of race and class and, and inequality in this country. Whenever I see any uh, draconian law, and this is probably the most draconian law of the year, other than the laws that disenfranchise voters. Whenever I see a law like this, I know there's a precedent for it because nothing happens in this country. Nothing happens in America that hasn't happened before. It's like history's greatest Mobius strip. We're just going round and round and the same figure eight track that we run through American history. So I knew as soon as SB8 was proposed and signed into law by the governor of Texas, that there was a precedent. And the first thing that came to mind was the Fugitive Slave Act because of this particularly onerous section where ordinary citizens would become vigilantes, that they would be deputized into doing evil things. The state, in the case of SB8, cannot be sued because the enforcement mechanism is being done by ordinary sovereign citizens, as it were. Now, where some might quibble about the comparison, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 makes everyone, every marshal, everyone in law enforcement, all the judges, the whole legal system, has to make sure, even in free states, has to re see that Blacks are returned back to slavery, their runaway. So it didn't matter that they ran to a border state that was free from the South. Enforcers could uh, deputize enforcers, ordinary people who decide that they want to be freelance, enslavers could cross the border, or if they already lived in that state, could approach someone that they believed was a slave, take that person into bondage, don't have to worry about habeas corpus, don't have to worry about trial. And basically, on the basis of their word, because the Black person's word did not have any legal force, just on the basis of their word, they could take someone into bondage, someone who may have happened to have been born free and wasn't even someone that had run away, but had had a business and a family and so forth. Like that movie, 12 Years a Slave. I mean, that's like a perfect example. Someone who is minding his own business and he's sort of taken into bondage on the basis of a enslaver's word, a freelancer's word. And I thought, hmm, here, I'm an Uber driver, and I'm driving a woman to a, a woman's clinic for whatever reason she she wants to go to that women's clinic. Maybe it's to get an abortion, or maybe she just needs a checkup, or maybe she's doing her annual checkup. But if, if I'm a snitch in Texas under this law, and I have reason to believe that she's getting an abortion, I get a $10,000 bounty in court because, you know, I'm going to bring up my suspicions to court. And the person that I'm accusing is going to have to defend themselves, you know, the clinic and the Uber driver. And regardless of the outcome of that, and we know what the outcome is going to be in Texas, I'm ahead $10,000. If that isn't the most evil and diabolical thing one has ever heard of, I don't know what is.
And this all happens if the woman finds herself pregnant after six weeks, and then the enforcement mechanism kicks in because then she is breaking the law no matter what. It doesn't matter whether she's been raped. It doesn't matter whether it's an act of incest. She is a criminal. Now, ironically enough, she is not subject to her arrest herself. I mean, the law hasn't gone that far yet. As soon as it does, we're basically to Margaret Atwood territory in Handmaid's Tale. But that day is coming because what we have right now is something that is evil adjacent. It is familiar to us here in America. And the fact is, is that the reason that these Texas legislators felt so comfortable with such a blatantly unconstitutional law is because they all they had to do was like dust off the history books and see, well, how did we do this kind of outrageous stuff in the 19th century? And how did we do it in the 18th century for the first Fugitive Slave Act? So it goes on and on and on. You know, more things change, the more they stay the same. One thing that I noticed yeah. in your was you made a connection between the guns and voting and abortion. And I'm wondering if you could speak more to what you see as the connection between in Texas. The guns are everywhere, abortion is not, and you can't vote if you're black right. or brown. What, it, it, what's exactly. going on here? Yeah, well, at the risk of sounding paranoid, I think that the Texas legislature knows exactly what's doing and that it's, it's almost like a soft succession on their part. I mean, they want to establish the fact that Texas is going to be a different kind of state than any other and that it's going to be much more patriarchal and violent. It wants to be the opposite of what it sees in blue America. I mean, I don't know how your listeners feel about this, but I think that the right to abortion in Texas has been effectively nullified. You know, it has been effectively nullified. And so what Texas wants to do, Texas wants to reinforce the fact that it's a a new sheriff in town, a new way of looking at the law is here. And if you don't like it, Supreme Court, we have guns. In fact, everyone can carry guns. If you don't like it, Washington, when you look at us, we all have guns. There's nothing you can do about it. Our legislature has spoken. And we're not going to let this state turn from red to blue or from purple to blue. We are going to make sure that only the right people are able to vote. And we're going to make sure that we can keep this minority government going. Even if it collapses in the rest of America, we're going to make sure that white patriarchy, white power, white supremacy rules until end of the the United States or the Republic or whatever you want to call it. We are going to make sure that we're on top. And I think it's that blatant. I think it's that bald. And I think it's that in your face. I think guns, disenfranchisement, and stripping abortion rights from women is just part and parcel of a program and worldview to basically make America great again, as it were, as in pre-Civil War great, antebellum great. And I think that's what's happening. I think what we're seeing before our very eyes in Texas, and we're going to see it repeated in lots of southern states, and maybe a northern state or two, or a midwestern state or two, we're going to see a very revanchist orientation towards the law, aided and embedded by a compliant Supreme Court that believes that an originalist vision of America, minimal rights for people, especially minorities and women, is really the way to maintain American greatness. And a lot of people will say, well, Tony, you're, you're just you're being hysterical again. I, I completely buy into the notion that white supremacy is very self-conscious and that it knows what it's doing. None of this is an accident. 
All of this is about restoring the hegemony of white power. When I look at the Southern strategy, which was really came into the fore during Nixon's campaign for presidency, and what you had there was the Southern Democrats, who were the group that hated civil rights and that the Southern Democrats were like, we cannot be in a party that believes that Black people have rights and is putting the federal government behind the exercise of Black people's rights as American citizens. And so you had the Republican Party look up and going, ooh, we can finally break the solid Democratic South and we can get the number of conservative votes in order to move forward our conservative agenda. And to me, just like the conservatives in Weimar, Germany, who looked at Hitler and said, ooh, we can use Hitler's group and Hitler's status in order to create the coalition that we need in order to quash the socialists and the communists who are in our Reichstag. We can do that and we can control them. Well, the thing about white supremacy is it is a viral toxin. It is all powerful. And when the conservatives brought that toxin of the Southern Democrats into the Republican Party. It took over. It moved the moderate Republicans out, silenced them, and it also then led to the base being just turned up, fueled on this fear, this anger, this hatred, fueled on it. And so it required then that those who were in the GOP primary had to speak to that base, that energized base, which continued to move the party further and further to the right. So when you think about the insurrection and you think about the big lie that this election was stolen and the way that Republicans have tried to downplay the insurrection, oh, this was just a tourist visit. Wow. (laughs) The way that they have blocked, blocked subpoenas, the way that they have blocked the investigation, a full-blown investigation and an unveiling of this, juxtapose that to Watergate, where you in fact had Republicans who were absolutely appalled at what the Nixon administration had done and said, oh, we cannot abide by this. When you have Barry Goldwater going into Nixon saying, no, son, no, son, you got to go. We cannot do this. You will not have the votes in the Senate to survive an impeachment. And Barry Goldwater was the one who helped with the Southern strategy because of his belief that Brown versus Board was unconstitutional, his belief that the Civil Rights Act violated basic states' rights. So Barry Goldwater is no flaming liberal, (laughs) but he was like, under this line, I will not go. We have yet to see that in this current version of the Republican Party. There is no line under which they will not go. The rule of law does not matter. Democracy is the enemy. That is what is so frightful and perilous about this time that we're in right now. That was In Order of Speaking, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Federico Finkelstein, Rosie O'Donnell in conversation with Jason Stanley, Anthea Butler, Sarah Posner, Jared Yates Sexton, Dr. Bandy Lee, Paul Street, Dahlia Lithwick, Eric Bullard, Walden Bellow, Printan Hill, Wajad Ali, David Atkins, Tony Norman, and Carol Anderson. I want to close out with some comments from my co-host and friend Coco Das, one of the editors of RefuseFascism.org. I think it's really important to understand the importance of two sides in contention. All three of these cases really are about the violent reassertion of white supremacy. 
the domination of white people over all others. And they can only achieve that through the same kind of violence that was used to enforce Jim Crow, even slavery. That's kind of what they want. They want everybody else to be cowering. But just as they can't actually achieve that without this brutality and violence, I'm speaking for myself here, but, you know, this is part of what Refuse Fascism has been organizing for. We're not going to drive this garage out of our society and out of our government without a massive response from millions of people. It is going to take the kinds of actions that we saw during the beautiful rising, millions of people in the streets. It's not going to be done through these normal channels and institutions that the Trump's GOP has shredded. They don't care about these norms and rules. They'll tear all that up. And it will take a movement of people who are willing to step outside of the normal channels and rise up. You know, it really is going to take a beautiful rising of people to repudiate this whole fascist program and drive it out. And that was Tony Norman, followed by Carol Anderson. This is The Michael Slate Show, and we've been hearing voices from 2021, the Refuse Fascism Year in Review. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank my assistant producer, Henry Carson, my production assistant, Jeff Pryor, and each and every one of you for tuning in. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas about the show, or if you want to volunteer to be part of the show, write to me at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. Once again, that's mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. like me and you have got laws that they adhere to laws outside the laws and say down by those we don't subscribe to the world is getting stranger Die for something. 